Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. Today is May the 4th. May the 4th be with you. If you have ever listened to this podcast before, you are probably well aware that Kirk and I are both big Star Wars fans. Uh, it's uh, it's what we grew up with. It uh, is probably the most important set of films from our childhood as far as sort of shaping and uh, and molding our attitude towards cinema, sci-fi, and uh, sort of uh, pop geek entertainment. Uh, and so since today is May the 4th, we thought we would uh, do a little special on Star Wars, something a little lighthearted in this, the age of the coronavirus quarantine. We are still separate. Kirk recorded his piece yesterday. I am recording mine uh, the morning of May the 4th. Kirk recorded a bit on memory and nostalgia and the sort of disjointed way that we remember uh, Star Wars and, and how that has been aided and abetted by the various versions that have come out over time. I've not listened to it yet, so you and I will enjoy it both together. Um, I'm not sure exactly what Kirk's going to say. And then afterwards, I, I believe he's recorded uh, the top five reasons he watches Star Wars still. Uh, I'm also going to come back with my top five reasons, and um, uh, we'll see how it goes. Okay, so it's back to me. Um, as I'm sure you're all aware, this is uh, May the four- our May the 4th episode that we are putting out, um, a holiday for every uh, Star Wars fan that's out there. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about with it, because it's it's something that's fascinated me recently. You guys who have listened to the show know that, you know, we are pretty big Star Wars fans. We're sort of constantly talking about it. We're constantly raising it. I, I guess it's the, the sort of touchstone for us from our, our childhood. But it's, it's a bit of a weird thing as to sort of how we uh, interact with it. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about was just the way sort of Star Wars has distorted memory. We've had so many different sort of versions of Star Wars and so many different things have happened with Star Wars that it's hard to remember exactly sort of what it was and, and what you remember it to be. And your, your memory of it's distorted by what you see in the future. And I think it's an interesting sort of microcosm for, I guess, the world and some of the way we see history generally. But let me just give you a little bit of back why did it sort of matter to me so much. So one of the things that's interesting is I actually did not see Star Wars in the theater uh, when it was first out. I was just a little too young, or actually so my parents thought. And so I did not see Star Wars in the theater. The first uh, Star Wars movie I saw in the theater was Empire Strikes Back. I believe the first time I saw it, I saw it, I believe at a friend's birthday party. What's interesting is that I had seen stuff to sort of prep me for seeing Empire Strikes Back and stuff associated with Star Wars. Now, obviously, all my friends had seen Star Wars. Uh, what had basically happened for me is by the time it sort of became a phenomenon, it was out of theaters. And at that point in time, there were no video. There was no video. Um, there was no way to see it other than sort of in the theater. And so I had not seen um, Star Wars in the theater. Now, I know I knew the basic story of Star Wars, and I don't know exactly why, um, how much of it I learned just from friends who are, or people who are sort of seriously into it. Um, I know that there definitely was sort of, they had a lot of knowledge about it that I didn't. What I do remember is I had at one point in time read the Star Wars book. The interesting thing about the one for Star Wars is one of the photos uh, in conjunction with it is of Biggs Darklighter. He appears right at the end. You see him embrace Luke um, when Luke arrives at the Rebel base. And you see Biggs Darklighter's uh, X-Wing get shot down. And you see 
you know, Luke kind of react to that. That's sort of the extent of what you see of it in Star Wars when you actually see the movie. What you find out is there's a deleted scene that uh, Big Star Letter was a friend of Luke's on Tatooine. He actually comes to Luke to say he's going to go off and join the Rebellion. Biggs is, is Luke's friend. That made it into the book. I always remember that when I first saw Star Wars the num- uh, in the theater, the number of things that were different. For a long time, I remembered that Biggs Dark Lighter appeared in Star Wars. The other thing about it is having seen it sort of on TV, when you see it on TV, it's edited. It's edited for content. Um, part of it is it was at that point in time edited to pan and scan from widescreen. We didn't have widescreen TVs. Uh, so definitely what was visible on the screen was not the same as what you saw on a theater. Um, and because of the fact that they need to edit it for ads, uh, it was made shorter. The original times I saw it, I didn't see the, the full thing. And for the longest time, I was very confused about you know, Biggs Darklighter and, and exactly who he was and everything else. And I know that that was because of the, the sort of exposure to the book. The reason I bring this up, um, the other thing I had seen is I had seen the making of uh, The Empire Strikes Back. And so it was uh, it was one of those things where it was it was very weird. It's always very weird for me to sort of think back um, as to what it is in conjunction with Star Wars because, again, I have some memories that are a little different. And that's kind of what I mean uh, by distorted memory is – there are definitely people, I think, like me, that sort of remember Big Starklighter being a bigger part of the story than he actually was in Star Wars. And they remember that because of the fact that that when the book was written, they read that book. And having that sort of elements of Big Starklighter, the movie made more sense. It was, it was an element that was unfortunate that had been gotten rid of, I think, because of the fact that it made the scene a lot more poignant, you know, which is suddenly realized that sort of, you know, Luke's idol, his childhood friend is, is shot down while they're attacking the Death Star. It's, it made it difficult to remember exactly what was in Star Wars and sort of what was the original story. And what I've, has now happened is that's happening more and more. And I think it's the thing and it's with Han shot first. It's the epitome of, I think, what the, the story is and how much that scene changes. I raise it because... I happened to have read an article online and I thought it was a sort of great comment about a guy who was, was born definitely after the original releases of Star Wars. He, he's a child who, you know, grew into Star Wars because of the prequels and wanted to see the original movies. And so he saw them um, and he saw, you know, special editions. That's, that was the version that was out. And he kept hearing about the, these other things. You know, the idea is, he said, Han shot second in the version that he saw, and that was the version that he knew. But he knew there was more. And how that's slowly removing itself from consciousness, uh, from the memory, and how difficult it is now to actually go back and see the original movie. Um, the other versions that are out there have been at least somewhat edited, uh, or their pan and scan, being where they, they change the widescreen to fit the square uh, screen of a television. And so I, I sort of treasure having that. I treasure having the ability to watch that version. That scene in particular, I think the reason why it affects so many sort of old school Star Wars fans is that scene very much defined who Han Solo was. Um, Han Solo was a scoundrel. <laughs> he was not a nice man. Uh, he is you know, somebody who's, who's sort of willing to do whatever it takes um, to make a buck and to survive in this universe. And I think when you start with that as his initial introductory scene, it really helps you to um, understand later the fact that, you know, hey, his betrayal is a big deal, um, that he's leaving. That's just who he is. Um, you know, everybody thought he was going to be more than that and he's not. And then in the end, it, it turns out he's sort of redeemed and he has more. But the idea of saying, you know, no, he's just defending himself. It's, it's something with that. As much as sort of, I think George Lucas has come out and said, no, that's what he really sort of intended all along. He just couldn't do the scene. 
I'm not sure he did. Um, I hate to say that, but I'm not sure he did. But that's sort of the thought I had with this distorted memory idea. And I think it's a very interesting sort of analogy with the idea that, you know, we're looking back at Star Wars now. There's these things that that people just don't know about it. There are people who have never seen the non-special editions of the movies. Um, They've never seen sort of the original Death Star explosion. They have never seen Star Wars without Jabba the Hutt in it. now, these are obviously scenes that were, you know, designed um, for the movie. There are scenes that put back in, in conjunction with the special edition, that did not make the original. There are things that sort of, as, as George Lee said, he would have liked to have done, uh, but just wasn't able to do. But at the same time, it has changed the movie. It has changed the memory in the same way that I had the changed memory because of having, you know, read the book, of having, you know, understood a, sto- a backstory of Doig's Dark Lighter, which doesn't appear in the movie. Um but it means now, when we look back on it, we look back at something which is now essentially almost 40 years old. Um, you kind of bunk into the question of what was the original story? Um, what is the real story? What is the real Star Wars story? And I look at that, and, and again, I've been, you know, I study history a little bit sort of for fun. Um, I'm definitely not a scholar in it or anything like that. But there are parts of history that I enjoy, I enjoy listening to. Uh, and enjoy sort of learning about, but it's one of those things that I think you come back to and you always kind of wonder how much of it is distorted um, as it comes down, how much of, you know, a documentary that's put out about something today um, actually has distorted history, uh, actually has something where the, the it's, it's, again, a distorted memory that people may look at, at something that occurred then and say, hey, you know, that's not really what happened. Um, you know, people would look at it and say, you know, no, Han didn't shoot first. Um, he shot second. Greedo shot first. Uh, because what they have seen is the version that said Greedo shot first and the, and the version that said, no, actually Han did, um, has kind of been removed. I see it as, as a concerning idea, um, of the idea of what does it mean to be, um, to be censorship? What does it mean for the idea that sort of the victories write the history books? How much do we encounter of the fact that when we can go back and something becomes important to us, we reanalyze it, we reanalyze it, we reanalyze it, and in some sense by reanalyzing it, we try to make it better. And so I guess I, I, I see that as, as one of the things, and that's why I wanted to talk about Star Wars in, in conjunction with that respect of this idea of what does it mean to have distorted memory? And when I talk with people who are, are sort of into Star Wars, who got into Star Wars later on, it can be very hard um, to get across some of the things that were important to it. And at the time, even some of the sort of things that were, um, uh, you know, it culturally part of it, you know, the nature of how the making of episode that he of, of um, Empire Strikes Back was such a huge deal. Um, the, the probably most important one, and I think the one that, that is the biggest thing now is it's really hard at this point in time to have anybody see Star Wars for the first time and really have an understanding of how big a question it was as to whether or not Vader was Luke's father. Um, you know, that was an, an unknown question. <laughs> you know, people did not know, uh, you know, what the outcome of that was going to be. That was a major cliffhanger. Uh, and there's a lot of cliffhangers that were like that, again, sort of when we were kids that just aren't now. And, I suggest it as people who are, you know, watching TV now or watching uh, movies now that, you know, have serialized plots that are, that are things where, 
Um, you actually have storylines that are going to continue and are going to have cliffhangers. Uh, and not knowing, it, to take sort of special meaning in the idea of not knowing what the outcome of a cliffhanger is, not knowing how the season is going to end. And, you know, sometimes those cliffhangers, uh, and thinking Game of Thrones here, um, can be a bit disappointing. Um, but at the same time, there's a certain value to being able to um, watch sort of a, 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 a television show, a movie, and not know how it ends um, and not know what the outcome of a cliffhanger is because it just isn't known yet. Um, and I think when people talk a lot about, you know, the, the concepts of spoilers and, and things about, you know, what it is, is, you know, what does it mean to have spoilers? That's, that's a lot of the reason why people try to avoid spoilers is because they, they don't, they want to hold on to that idea of just what really is it, you know, what is the cliffhanger? What does it mean, um, longer than, than they did? So anyway, it kind of rambled there. Um, so what it is, getting into the idea of cliffhangers, getting into stuff like that. But again, what, what I really see is the most interesting part about this is the idea of this distorted history of it's, it's hard to understand sort of what the original was like um, because the original isn't really available anymore. Um, there's just, there, there's things like that and things that we sort of all encountered. Um, I've had other experiences with that, not just with Star Wars. Uh, the other one definitely that's uh, sort of weird, the first time I ever saw Aliens. Um, which is another one of my sort of favorite uh, science fiction movies. Uh, I saw it in the Laserdisc version. Um, I had a friend who I'd never seen Aliens. Uh, again, it was a it was a sort of horror movie. Um, I was not big into horror movies as a kid. Uh, my parents did not think I should see it, um, and so I did not see it uh, in the theaters. But when I was in high school, I was over at a, a friend's house, and uh, he he was a big Aliens fan, and we were using actually the Aliens. Um, as part of a, a school project we were using, we were splicing some video together to make a, a joke project actually for German class. Um, so we were doing an advertisement um, in German using some uh, elements of, of the uh, Aliens video. But um, you can probably guess which ones. But the, uh, one of the things with it was if you've ever seen the Laserdisc version, uh, the Laserdisc version has Sentry Guns. Um, and again, anybody who's an Aliens fan knows the Sentry Guns. So the first time I saw Aliens, it had the Sentry Guns. Um, when I then later on uh, sort of, you know, got I mean, the movies, I bought a lot of movies on my own and I bought my first copy of Aliens I was stunned because it doesn't have the Sentry Guns uh, because that was only in the Laserdisc version it wasn't even in the theatrical version um, and so it's one of those where you know it, it stunned me for the longest time of not having that scene um, and I was very pleased when they then actually released on DVD they released the director's cut that does have that scene in it so it actually released the, uh, the Laserdisc version so I was very pleased to actually have the Sentry Guns back again but again this, this idea that you know it's hard at some point in time to say what is the original and sometimes when you see the original and it's something that really affects you like it does for Star Wars, like it did for a lot of people when they first see a movie. Uh, later on, it, it's hard to, to sort of explain why that was, why it's so um, concerning to them that, that the versions have changed. And I think it's one of those where it doesn't bother me, you know, special edition Star Wars doesn't bother me. I, have spe- I own the special editions, I own multiple versions of, of Star Wars. I enjoy watching different ones at different times. Um, it's not so much that it's changed, it's that seeing the original is so hard. Um, and it's because of that idea of the distort of again distorted memory and the idea that somehow something is lost by not allowing people to say, "Hey, this is the way it was originally released. This is the way we changed. This is what I thought it should be," uh, and being honest with the idea of doing that, and instead saying, "No, this is the definitive. This is the only one that exists. It, we've changed it, but it's the only one that exists because it's not." Um, so anyway. I've rambled a bit, but it's it's one of the things I wanted to talk about in conjunction with uh, Star Wars because I think it's it's important and I think it's a it's a good cultural context of what I think a lot of people think. So anyway, um, 
I'm going to turn it back over to Ben. That was kind of a long uh, segment for me. Yeah, but anyway, I'm going to turn it back over to Ben, and I'm going to jump back and do a little bit of a, a sort of top five list here in a minute. Okay, thank you, Kirk. Top five reasons why we still watch Star Wars. Why is it that a movie I have seen probably in the hundreds of times I've seen Star Wars and, and Empire Strikes Back um, and Return of the Jedi, why do I keep coming back and watching them again? Um, what is it about the movies that, that keep drawing me back in? It has an association with me from my childhood and something that was very, very important to me. And, and so that's, I think, the, the sort of fifth reason. As I said, I started off um, really with Empire Strikes Back. To me, the one, if I'm going to go back and I want to reminisce, I'm going to watch Empire Strikes Back. Uh, that's the movie that was the, the, the strongest one to me, the strongest one I associate with. So I, I definitely have sort of that, you know, cultural touchstone, uh, for me. And I think that's my, my first reason why I do it is it is, it is nostalgia, uh, for lack of a better term. Okay, my number five is nostalgia and childhood. Uh, Star Wars is just what I grew up with. Uh, everybody from my generation knows it. We all watched it, especially those of us who were nerds. And uh, it had, you know, Star Wars has always had sort of a universal appeal. It definitely had it from the start. Um, I got into it because my parents, my dad especially, um, I remember him when we got a VCR, the first movie he rented was Empire Strikes Back. It has a, sort of, it has a universal appeal, but it also has nerd depth. Uh, it has the, uh, the enough technical detail and, and universe-expanding um, opportunity to lay the groundwork for expanding the story for uh, those of us who really geek out on these kind of things to get into the, the details between the lines of the script that, you know, that the filmmakers didn't even think of, but things that we notice and then they sort of uh, plant a seed in our imaginations and take off from there. So the, the best way I can describe it is that Star Wars was a story that it inspired us to want to tell stories and, and probably inspired countless filmmakers, uh, you know, countless people of my generation in particular to want to become filmmakers and tell stories. And it probably influenced me as well. I, you know, Kirk and I have both talked about how we've done some fiction writing in our time. And uh, I, I would be lying if I said that Star Wars was not a part of what made me want to do that. I remember being a kid and, and watching the movies on tape and uh, I would get to the end of Return of the Jedi and as Luke is lighting the funeral pyre and uh, the Ewoks are singing and the whole thing sort of winding down, I just kind of got sad, you know, that this is it. This was all there was to consume. I had seen all the Star Wars that there was and there was nothing else and it made me want to go out and write more of it or write more of something. I wanted to create, uh, uh, you know, fiction works that, that had that kind of emotional impact on people. And so, like, when Avatar came out and there was, like, there were news reports of people who were experiencing, like, depression and sadness when the movie was over, that they couldn't go be part of that world and that that was all that there was. And, uh, you know, people kind of made fun of them and called them, like, you know, snowflake millennials and things like that. But I got that. I understood it. I didn't – Avatar didn't impact me that way, but that's not a movie for my generation. Um, it was a good film. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed it, but I didn't – didn't have that same kind of sense. So I understand the, the, the reaction to Avatar was in some sense very similar to how me and my generation reacted to Star Wars. Uh, I think the other reason, uh, the sort of next reason, maybe uh, reason number four, um, why I go back and continue to watch them at the time uh, is because ultimately they, um, they're movies that I think are, are timeless in their storytelling. Um, it's a story that just is fun to watch 
even if you know what the ending is. Um, and we all know what the ending is. But it's still a fun story to watch. It's a fun story to watch play out. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it. we all know how the, the story goes. We all know the story plays out. But it, it's it's such a good story and it's such a timeless story. I think we all enjoy um, sort of seeing it again and again. There, There's, it, it's, it, it's true of most of the movies that I think I would watch again and again is I enjoy the storylines um, of them. And it's, it's fun to just sort of see that story play out again. Okay. My number four, uh, the visuals, uh, the visuals in star Wars are just incredibly imaginative, even in the, even in the bad films. Uh, but especially in the original trilogy, they are, well, the, the originals are imaginative in all the films, but in the original trilogy, they're not only imaginative, but they are introduced and, and rolled out to the viewer uh, in a narrative format that keeps you immersed in the story and causes the visuals to really serve the plot. Um, and this is probably the most true in Empire Strikes Back. I think uh, that film handles it the best. There are a lot of, of what are really preposterous technologies in Star Wars. But the attention to detail in, in how they were presented and how the characters and the story interacted with them, especially in the original trilogy, um, allowed the audience to, to not only overlook those um, you know, ridiculous aspects of them, uh, but to make them seem even cooler. So uh, a simple example is the probe droid on Hoth. Uh, if you remember at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back, uh, we, see, we see a space scene and an anonymous Star Destroyer launches some sort of uh, probe droid down to Hoth. And it lands and it comes out of its little casing and starts exploring. And this is how we're introduced to where the rebels are. And then later this comes back when the droid is, is you know, relaying information back to the Empire. It's how the Empire finds them. Uh, but... We get three or four little scenes with that droid. Some of them are only five or ten seconds long, showing it, you know, uh, puttering around Hoth and seeing things. It finds the shield generators. It takes pictures of those. It has an encounter with um, um, Han and, and Chewie where they blow it up. And it's, it's introduced to us in a, a gradual manner so that we can see what it is. We can see what it does. We understand what role it serves in the plot. And it just feels like a natural part of this universe and not something that was just dropped into a scene for, for plot expediency. Uh, the same thing with uh, Vader's Superstar Destroyer. I think this is one of the, the best scenes in Empire Strikes Back. Uh, so when, when we first see this ship, we first see like a, a, just a regular old Star Destroyer, the ones that we saw in the prior movie, with like a shadow kind of slowly creeping over the, the superstructure. And then finally there's a low angle shot uh, from underneath it where you can see that it is, you know, the thing that's overshadowing it is a much bigger ship, but we don't see the full ship at that point. Then we get the wide angle shot that shows the, the executor with all of the smaller Star Destroyers around it. You then get, a, you know, that's your first glimpse of the comparative sizes. And then we, we switch to Vader on the bridge of, you know, what, what we're meant to assume is that bigger ship. So and this is also the first time we hear the Imperial March. Recall that it's not in Star Wars at all. It was introduced in Empire Strikes Back. So what I love about this scene is that the, the framing implies the narrative elements, right? We see the vastly expanded reach of the Empire, although the Death Star is gone. On, uh, we, we can see from this assemblage of ships that they've still got a lot of firepower, that it was just the Death Star was one piece in their, their military machine. Uh, and we also see the amount of resources Vader is willing to commit to just finding one man, Luke, right? And so that also gives us uh, a sense of, 
of one, Vader's position in the Empire with Tarkin gone. You know, uh, Vader has stepped up and taken a more active role. The last time we saw Vader, he was spinning off into space in a small, you know, damaged one-man fighter where he was almost disposable. Now he's on this huge ship commanding a giant fleet and putting all these resources towards just finding Luke. He's single-mindedly focused on that. And we don't even really know why yet. I think at the beginning of the film, we're meant to believe it's sort of to get revenge on him because uh, Luke uh, destroyed the Death Star. But as the film unravels, we find out that that's not the case, that there's a deeper relationship there. So... Um, the, the big ships are, and, and the, the, the fleet size, we, we get a lot of visual information in that scene that resets us and tells us kind of where Vader is in the story. It also tells us a little bit about where Luke is in the story, how badly outgunned and outmanned the Rebels really are, even without the Death Star. This is information we all need because it's, it's kind of hard to go back to after you saw Star Wars, but before you saw Empire and, and what you thought the you know, the status of the characters in the story was. So Empire starts so far after Star Wars that we've got to get reoriented in the setting and the plot and what's happened to everybody since. And the first, you know, maybe half an hour of Empire is just rolling out that information. So it's, it's all done very, very well. Uh, and it makes something as preposterous as a 10-mile-long spaceship seem less less silly. Uh, the same thing with the Adat Walkers. Uh, the technical problems with the Falcon, uh, Cloud City, the carbon freezing chamber, all of these details are, are really revealed to us in a very careful and deliberate manner that tells us everything we need to know about the technology to understand the plot, to understand the characters, and to move each scene forward. And this is also where I think the prequels kind of fell apart. They didn't ever stop to give us that breathing room. Those films really just rushed at like at a breakneck uh, pace from one action sequence to the next with a little filler dialogue in between to tell us what's going on. But it never stopped and like caught its breath and, and really used the visual format to convey to the audience subtly uh, information about the world, the setting, and, and how we can expect it to interact with the characters. Uh, episode one, actually, for as much as Kirk and I have criticized it, did the best at this of the prequels, uh, but it also made the movie too long because the story was too complicated. Uh, and, and that film had just deeply um, um, embedded structural problems that just caused it to not work. So although the technologies in episode one are, are more understandable and, and seem less um, randomly you know, injected into the plot, uh, the plot itself seems random and, and nonsensical, so n none of it worked. But uh, anyway, I'm, this, I'm belaboring the point now, but uh, the, the visuals are amazing, and especially in, this, in the original trilogy, uh, the, the editing and, and pacing and structuring of the plot uh, was just really deftly handled to introduce those to us in a way that made it feel seamless, even though the technologies we were watching were, were just on their face silly. So I think number three, uh, the reason why I, I sort of jump back um, and see it is because it does remind me um, of what actually happened. <laughs> and that's going to sound kind of weird in the, my thing with it, but it's, we all know that, you know, we watch the movie in the end, you know, we only retain small amounts of everything that we see. So we remember all the story, but we don't remember all the details. And so it's kind of fun to see those details again, um, you know, to go through and go, oh yeah, that's the exact order that those scenes occur in. Or, you know, I forgot exactly what the mouse droid does, you know, the, those kind of things sort of with it. It's, it's fun to, to remember the details because it's, you're not going to remember all of that stuff uh, in conjunction with it. So that's my, I guess, number three. 
Okay, my number three is the theme of family. It's, it's kind of become a trope, but uh, the, the idea of family as a core plot element is, of course, universal. It's universally relatable, and uh, everybody can understand Luke's pain at not having parents uh, and, and never knowing them. He's sort of a Bruce Wayne character that way. Uh, that's one, thing, one, one of the reasons why I think we understand and like Bruce Wayne, why Batman is so universal, even Superman. You know, Superman never knew his parents. He was adopted. Um, and, you know, Luke likewise never knew his parents. He was adopted. Batman, you know, a little different. He saw his parents gunned down in an alley and kind of lives with the, the survivor's guilt. Uh, but this, this theme of, of losing or not having parents and growing up as an orphan is, is really commonplace in heroic narratives. Um, we, we see it in ancient Greek narratives as well. And, um, it, it also gives rise to, you know, plots that involve rediscovering heritage, rediscovering who you are, you know, not, not knowing your, your parenting or your, your heritage, um, always has this question mark, who am I really? Uh, and I think this is something that, that everybody struggles with this question throughout their lives. Who am I really? Whether you've, you know, whether you've got family or not. And, but not, not having that family anchor doesn't give you a starting point for the inquiry. So, uh, I think this is something that makes, uh, Luke relatable, makes all the characters relatable, um, and, and makes the story really accessible. Um, my number two, and this is, I think, uh, sort of an important one related to that, to me, it's very valuable to have it for other Star Wars fans. Um, it's something where to be able to go and say, hey, I've seen the movie recently. This is, you know, it reminded me of this to see these kind of things again is important for the the interaction with things outside of the movies themselves. I've watched documentaries on, you know, the action figures, on the history of the sort of action figures, which are fascinating if you guys want to watch them. And again, sort of talking about the idea of, of lost memory. Um, how many people remember the empty box uh, in conjunction with getting Star Wars figures? I know I didn't get one, uh, but I had friends who did. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing of going back and remembering, okay, this was, you know, this is what it was. And, and, Again, I think it's for because it's such a major sort of thing, it's valuable to go back and sort of see the, the pieces of it again to be able to interact with the outside things, to be able to go in and say, you know, yes, this is what happened. This is the specifics of it. Um, I, hate to, I hate to sort of say it, but it's almost for research purposes. I mean, that's a kind of thing about it is it's, it, I think it's useful to go back and sort of retouch on those things for research purposes to make sure you're remembering everything correctly when you're watching something else or when you're interacting with something else in conjunction with it. My number two is uh, one of the things I... I still love about Star Wars is that it sort of harkens back to a bygone era of storytelling. Good guys are good, bad guys are bad, and we really don't need an explanation or, or backstory of, of why. You know, we're, we're showing our hero, we, we know he's a good guy, and we know the bad guy uh, is not. And we, we don't need that nuance. We can just sort of check the complexity of the real world at the door and just live for a few hours uh, in, in a universe where uh, good and evil are, are, are binaries. Uh, and I think that the prequels got away from this. They tried to tell, you know, the more complex and and uh, difficult story of Anakin's fall from good to evil, um, and that's that's a harder thing to do to, to do to make it interesting and sympathetic and understandable. And I think what we learned from the prequels is that Lucas is um, George Lucas. His his strength in filmmaking is is not is not. Um, the, the details or the, or the narrative structure, his, his real strength is, is sort of conceptual and thematic, uh, visionary strength. George's original films never ask us to think about the, the, you know, the Death Star and, and the millions of people who live on it and work on it 
who are just, you know, conscripted soldiers working for the empire who don't even know what they're doing. Maybe, you know, there's, you know, we're we're not asked to think about the janitors that are cleaning up the, um, you know, the officers quarters or, or the cooks that are making the food who all get killed when the Death Star blows up. You know, those, those are upsetting moral quandaries that uh, this type of film is not asking us to consider. So the bad guys are bad, the good guys are good, the good guys blow up the bad guy's big laser ball, and uh, they get medals, and the end, and it's simple. So there's a there's a line, have you ever seen the remake of True Grit? Uh, I think it's by the Coen brothers. Uh, there's a line where a character uh, says, I don't entertain hypotheticals, the world as it is is vexing enough. And I think sometimes that's what we want out of movies, especially right now. Uh, the world as it is is indeed vexing enough. So I, th- I always appreciate the chance to just set the vexing world aside for a little bit and, uh, and escape into something that's just uh, simpler. And the number one reason I go back and, and continue sort of to watch the Star Wars movies, and I think it's, it was the one maybe everybody's expected from conjunction with this list, they're good movies. Um, it amazes me at times watching them how they still stand up. Uh, and I think the most interesting thing about it is, uh, you know, I have the DVD version, the Blu-ray versions, where you know when you watch them at high definition, you can see the squares around the um, the, the Tie Fighters. You know, it shows it in a version that it was never intended to be watched in, um, and yet somehow it it doesn't overly distract from the movie. And one of the things I always wonder about is how much of that is me because the fact that I'm remembering what the movie was like, I, I, I don't see them because I'm, I'm paying so much more attention to the story and how cool the story was um, versus, you know, somebody who sees it for the first time and that's distracting of sort of, you know, wait, why do we see this, you know, special effect thing that, that we shouldn't be seeing? Um, but that's the thing with it to me that it always comes back to, it's still such a good story. It's such a pervasive story. Um, and that story sort of pervades so many things. Uh, as you guys know, we were in you know Orlando. We went down to uh, to Disney, and because of that, we obviously saw some of the the Star Wars displays there. And it's still cool to me to be able to say like you know, hey, you know, this is Chewbacca. Um, you know, these are Peter Pikes. Like this is actually part of it. It's it's great to stand underneath an ad at. Um, and yeah, there's you know elements of it is hey now it's you know th- those shows are, are very much into the, the 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 last three movies you know they're all very focused on kylo ren they're all very focused on sort of the ongoing storyline but at the same time there's parts of them where it's not you see things from return to the jedi you see things from empire strikes back uh, you even see things from the original star wars and it's like you know this is still part of it i mean there, there's a reason why um you know in jedi training the the kids who come up in jedi training still fight darth vader um, they fight kylo ren too but they still fight darth vader um, and I think ultimately because they're, they're movies that are a little bit timeless. So I guess that's the, the thing I come down to it is it's ultimately the reason why I still watch them is because they're still, to me, they're still good movies and I still enjoy them. And there's lots of older movies I still watch that I think are good movies, but that's what brings me back to them. And my number one reason why I watch Star Wars is it's, it's, it's just fun. Um, this is probably related to my immediately prior point about, uh, the, the simplicity of it, but it's just plain fun to watch. Um, it's, you know, I, I, I like challenging films, too, that sort of present um, difficult situations and ask you to think. But every time I watch film, I don't necessarily want that kind of intellectual exercise. Sometimes I just want to check my brain at the door, eat some popcorn, and just and just have some fun. You know, it's entertainment. It's supposed to also be fun. So, um, you know, Kirk and I both had criticisms of the, the latest trilogy, but ultimately, they were fun films to watch. They're well-made. They're kinetic. Uh, they are interesting. Uh, they're funny. Um, you know, the humor doesn't always work. I thought it was especially maybe misplaced in the uh, uh, episode eight. 
Um, but but overall, uh, they're just fun. They're fun films. They're interesting to watch. They're interesting to look at. And uh, it's sort of like uh, it, it's a it's a comfort zone uh, to come back to these characters in this world that's always still there waiting for us. And uh, just just sink into it for a little bit, like a, like a comfortable couch. Forget the complexity of the real world and relax and have a good time. And and to do that with friends and family who are all enjoying the experience with you. So all right. So there you have it. Our uh, May the Fourth special during the age of coronavirus. Um, I'm going to wrap this up. We hope everybody is uh, staying safe, staying healthy out there. Um, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take some time. Watch some Star Wars with your with your family. If your kids haven't seen it, uh, you know, sit down with them and watch it. It's um, it's, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, so that's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri.